Hello and welcome to Her Ambition, the podcast that supports ambitious young women to start their career right. This is a podcast that celebrates a generation of female leaders opening doors for the next. I'm your host, Josie Sequira Shuka, and each week I'll be talking with a new inspiring woman so that we, as the next generation of successful women, can learn from their mistakes, their successes, and most importantly, lay a solid foundation for our own futures. My guest today is Dr. Helen Pankhurst. Helen Pankhurst is a women's rights activist and author of Deeds Not Words, the story of women's rights then and now. As you may have guessed by her surname, Helen is the great-granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst and the granddaughter of Sylvia Pankhurst, the leaders of the British suffragette movement. And each year, Helen herself leads the International Women's Day March in London. Helen is also the senior advisor to Care International and in 2019 was appointed a CBE for her services to gender equality. She even had a cameo in the 2015 film Suffragettes. Helen, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. It's fantastic to have you here. I'm so excited to get started and ask you all the questions because I know you'll have some amazing things to say. So my first question for you is quite a big one for a first question. But that is that what are your hopes for my generation in terms of gender equality and how can we stand on your shoulders and everything that you've done? Well, I stand on the shoulders of many others, et cetera, et cetera. And I suppose that's what it's all about, isn't it? Is that every generation um, has the benefit of the campaigns and the successes of previous generations. So has more opportunities, more opportunities to dream, to envisage a different world, to be part of that world. Uh, fewer constraints, less of the burden of what uh, traditionally culture and society has put on women, less of that subservient role that traditionally uh, we've had to take on. Um, and the, the possibilities, but also the responsibility of the, the baton being handed over to that generation, to your generation, um, because we're not there, you know, we're not there, we don't have, we don't live in an equal world yet, so there's still work to be done. and in the same breath also, we women, we young women, well, you young women, me as an older person, um, uh, there are differences in terms of how we experience things amongst ourselves, i.e. I'm, I'm already hinting at the issue of intersectionality and the fact that you can't just address gender issues without looking at the intersecting factors of class, colour, sexuality, ability, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things to think about there. And one thing for me that keeps cropping up again and again is that I find a lot of people my age don't step into the name and label of feminism and they reject it. One thing that I found really common when having a discussion with another woman, especially if a boy is present, is that they'll say, well, I wouldn't call myself a feminist, but dot, 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 dot. And I was wondering, why do you think that some women don't own this label and they reject it? Like, what's what's the fear there? I think it's that the term itself is, you, you know, you can ask the question, who owns that term, feminist? Are you allowing the detractors of feminist to present it in a certain way, or are you proud of it? Um, and my challenge to those who are a little bit scared and hide behind saying, oh, well, I believe in gender equality, but I wouldn't quite call myself feminist, is that they're allowing that term feminist to be taken away 
from what it's all about, which is that idea that there still is inequality and that we have to do something about it. And the parallels for me a little bit is the term suffragette, which was used as a diminutive derogative term by the Daily Mail against this lot of women that were saying we demand change. And um, Emmeline and her supporters said, we're going to own it. We love the term. Let, let's, let's, let's use it. Let's own it. And they, they did that. And I think it's up to all of us not to be, not to allow the detractors to own language because language itself is so powerful. I love what you just said. So don't let the detractors own the language and own that label of feminism like Emmeline did and all her supporters years ago, suffragette. I didn't actually know that, that was a detractor. I can't say the word now. Yeah, derogatory or detractor. Derogatory yeah. phase. Am I right in thinking that there was another word as well, suffragist, and then there was suffragette? What, what's actually the difference there? So suffragists were the constitutional ones, the ones who had been campaigning in, in very traditional ways. And the suffragette movement, the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, was started with a sense that was frustration that things, nothing was changing. And their slogan was deeds, not words. We're going to make a difference. We're going to demand that governments to do something. Deeds, not the promise of um, things. Um, and the it was coined as a, this et, you know, little kind of uh, that kind of thing. Um, and Emmeline thought, no, I'm going to own it. It's a it's a nice term. It's a it's a lovely term. Let's go for it. And, <laughs> and completely owned it. And of course, that's that's the title of your book as well, Deeds Not Words. And you took that from the suffragettes. Yeah. No, lovely. And going back to what we said before about that sort of fear of owning the term feminism and you know owning it yourself. Do you think that that fear manifests its ways into other areas of society? I'm thinking specifically about girls not wanting to do sort of like manly subjects. Is that a similar fear, do you think? Yes, I think it's about social norms, expectations, um, and uh, this view that women and girls, and girls in particular, young girls in particular, should be quiet, should be looked at and not engage. Um, should be in the background, should not speak up, you know, hence you shouldn't be a, a feminist because a feminist speaks up for herself, you know, you, 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 you go behind, you, you hide, you, you minimise yourself. And, and then if you look at subjects, you do the traditional subjects, you do the genteel subjects, you know, you wouldn't do physics and maths and chemistry and um, though the subjects are associated, you wouldn't be an engineer, subjects which are associated with manly kind of power and dominance and control. Um, and I think there's a hint of that still in society. It's changing. But if you, in your mind, thought of what an engineer would be, I think we still think of very traditional ideas of both who the engineer is and what engineering is about. Whereas the reality is that the tools of engineering could be put to many, many different um, needs and skill sets and so on, um, which, which we, we, we minimize and diminish if we think that engineering is just this and looks just like that. It's just, there's so much more that you could do with it. Um, and likewise, you know, the, the, the wonder of language, if boys are not encouraged to get involved in those, they are missing out. So it's not like saying one is better than the other or one is more powerful than the other. It's saying why or why or why are we making the world divided so that men do one thing and women the other when depending on your interests and, and what inspires you, anybody should be able to do anything. Mm -hmm. Why are we making it narrower? Why are we making it more divided? And 
And I think you're completely right saying that it's still there now, even for those subjects. For my subjects, yeah, physics, chemistry, and maths, I was the only girl in all of my classes for A-level. So even though some people would say, oh, we live in an equal society, when you're walking into the class and it's full of boys, it didn't necessarily feel like I completely belonged there. Uh, and an example of that I, also with my daughter is that she thought about doing engineering or law and she went to look at different universities and to be honest the atmosphere um, in the when when she looked at the university uh, places where there were all mainly young men very very few young women she thought do I really you know is that really the space I want to occupy and by contrast she felt immediately included when she was in um, looking at law-related, um, you know, well, courses. So even when you get to the, even if you've studied, when it comes to going to university and you think about who the people are, you're going to be working with and that sense of collegiate uh, friendships um, and what gets talked about and how it gets talked about, I think there are, the, the gender stereotypes still apply. And therefore the, the division, the, the schisms in society about who does what is still there. Mm -hmm, exactly. And that feeling of inclusion when you go into a room is so important. So I think that makes complete sense for your daughter who went into the engineering school and felt this doesn't feel right because that's so important to feel like you, like you belong there. So that's an interesting point because lots of people, you know, we want to have more girls in science and STEM and engineering. But how do we get more girls into it if they, if when they walk into the room, they don't feel like they belong there? How are we actually going to get the women in there for the other women to feel like they belong there? Yeah, I think, I think, I think universities could do so much. I think schools need to do so much to um, uh, make sure that people feel comfortable, whichever gender they are, so that it feels mixed and not just in terms of gender, um, and so that, and also the explanations of what that that uh, discipline involves are not. Um, you know, stereotypically hard hat, uh, macho type images of, 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 uh, of the things, you know, so when you think about chemistry and physics, you know, to make sure that the examples that are being used aren't just pigeonholing a certain type of activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I do think there's, there's a lot, a lot that could be done that would make it more comfortable. I mean, even and, you know, we've got we were talking about university now because of your age, but the same applies from primary school onwards, you know, as to what people are encouraged to study and think about and dream about and talk about. Um, so what, what can we do? We, we need to challenge those very quick gendered um, presentations, the toys, the toys, the colors that um, parents give toys um, to their, their kids, still the pinkification of things, um, all of that. that, that it's layers and layers and layers of stereotype that our society is uh, creating and perpetuating that we need to challenge. Mm -hmm. So it's layers of stereotypes and it's really complicated as well. So although it's complicated, I really want to know if you could just make any big change, like if you could click your fingers and make all these changes happen, what would those changes be that you'd like to see? I think everybody owning that they are part of the jigsaw puzzle, you know, that they um, they can either perpetuate things or they can challenge it um, is really important because every single person watching this, um, every single person can in so many ways in their personal lives, in their professional uh, work, in their relationship with others can perpetuate or can challenge. And you asked, you know, what with the click of a button? And I would say it's the small things that really matter as well. You know, 
by all means, be a, a loud advocate, go on the marches, do all of these other things. But in your day to day, the minutiae of how you live, that's where gender stereotypes get perpetuated. Who does the dustbin? Who um, is is asking what of their grandchildren or, uh, you know, I, I say that because uh, on a number of cases, I was told that grandparents often ask their granddaughter and their grandsons different things. So their grandsons, they will say, you know, what do you want to be? Who do you want to be? And their granddaughters, have you got a boyfriend yet? So if you hear that, you as a young person shouldn't just accept that, but challenge it and say, well, you know, why are you asking me that question when you're asking my brother this other? Um, actually, he wants to um, have children when he's 20 and um, I might want to have children, but also the career that I'm really interested in is in this and uh, calling it out and calling it out within a family gently. I'm not saying, um, because because we are all complicit in so many ways and since we're complicit we have to do it with care and with love and with attention but that's what we can do all of us challenge challenge those layers to challenge those layers I, the example you give about grandparents as well i think that's very key and not something that i'd actually thought about before but it is often questions towards boys about, you know, what are you doing? What, like action oriented questions, like, what are you doing? How was your game? What, what sport are you doing? All these things about what are you doing? And for girls, it's often more relational about who they're with, like how they are and how they feel and that sort of thing. I just think that, yeah, that's a really interesting point. So, so carrying on from when girls are really young and those key changes that we need to see there, Going to when girls are older, how can we get more women into positions of power and influence? And also, how can we get more women really wanting to be in the, into those positions as well? Um, so how can we get more of them into positions of power? I think understanding what the different constraints are and one by one addressing them. So if we think of Parliament, for example, um, I'm involved in something called the Centenary Action Group, which is an advocacy uh, coalition looking at what the constraints are as to why women don't go into parliament and why they don't stay and you can break it down in terms of three things one is around violence so the violence that women experience uh, in positions of leadership is much greater than uh, the violence that men experience and this is through twitter and things like that and again intersectionality so if you're if you're a black and white and and a woman you tend to get more etc so looking at ways in which we can address the online abuse in particular um is is one and there's an online harms bill that's going through parliament at, at the moment and we can have a whole, a whole set of conversations about how you address that the other is around structural things like i i found it almost unbelievable that it's only very recently that a systematic maternity leave policy was introduced for cabinet uh, members. So MPs, your standard MP, does not have an automatic uh, um, maternity leave policy in parliament. It doesn't exist. Women can go and try and ask for some kind of a cover or some kind of support, but there's nothing automatic, which for me is just mind blowing. And that's just an example of how structurally the expectation is that leaders are male and that you don't support that, uh, that broader 
diversity that can make sure that everybody feels comfortable. It's back to that individual girl going to university and feeling comfortable when she goes in and knowing that her needs will be supported. And again, you know, there were times when, um, for example, there were women engineers that were brought into new uh, work and there weren't any female toilets and they, they were not allowed to go into the male toilets and they weren't female toilets or this, the um, clothes that they were wearing were the wrong size and the boots that they were wearing were the wrong size because they were made for men. So structural ways in which leadership is hampered by the fact that the little things that are what makes you function as a human being are modeled um, in terms of men, not uh, women. So that's the second set of things that can be done. And then economically, there's a whole set of issues around the fact that women tend to be poorer, they tend to have less wealth and less income because of the whole way in which work is structured. And in leadership, for example, in parliament, um, if you don't have the support of a male partner that's willing to support you in your work as you become an MP, uh, it's that much harder. Or if you want to be a counsellor, for example, that's even less well paid. And these are not secure jobs. You're voted in, you're voted out. Uh, and so the economic constraints that also, I think, need to be uh, understood. So economic violence and the whole kind of structural, the system itself, I would say, is, is problematic. And I've given an example around politics. But I think if you look at any area of leadership, understanding what the practical constraints are is a critical element and then networking the supports and making sure that women feel comfortable in those places is also absolutely pivotal i could go on and on but i'll stop there you could go on and on because there are so many different examples of where we need change so now this is similar to that question but perhaps more positive for everyone to look at what will the world look like when we have an equal number of men and women in positions of power and influence? Now, that is, isn't that a lovely question? And it's, it's the fundamental of things, isn't it? I think that where we have seen um, societies that are more equal, uh, there's a modelling that, that uh, provides a different view of things. And because we've just talked about politics, my mind is on looking at what countries where we've had different types of leaderships. And recently it's New Zealand where the leader there has shown compassionate strength uh, in ways that uh, are you know, very unusual and have been proven recently in terms of how effective they are in the context of COVID, for example. So what will we see? I think we will see different forms of leadership. I think we will see um, a more successful world because different skills will be valued. You know, and I'm not saying female skills are a particular way. I, I don't want to stereotype us to be uh, functioning a certain way. But what I'm saying is if you've got two lenses, if you've got two eyes on the world and you value them both, then surely what you end up with is richer, more textured, better. Um, and that, that's without even introducing the kind of gendered ideas of what women can bring because of nature, nurture, and all of those things around um, the, the way that they approach things. So I, I'd, I'd like to focus on bringing two ways of thinking into a space as being particularly important without um, necessarily saying that women have a better approach. I think it's both that are important. So that's just the very base of it, that if you've got two different ways of thinking, 
and you're going to have a better understanding and make better decisions as well. So how far is it till we actually get there? I mean, how far have we come in the fight for gender equality? Yeah, so it's also, um, it's also, you know, I mentioned having two lenses, but it's also what you value. So if you've got social uh, infrastructure and physical infrastructure and your government trying to decide on how to make investments, the tradition is that physical infrastructure gets more money than social infrastructure. That's what we've seen in the UK. And what I'm saying is that when you have different eyes, you tend to value things differently. And it's that valuation as well as the two different eyes that would be important. So, you know, we would value education and uh, health as much as we would value roads and buildings. Uh, and we'd put the same kind of money and focus on, on both sets of things. Um, sorry, so I came back to that, but you had you'd moved me on to another point, remind me. But that's a very good point, though, because it's, again, coming back to having an equal set of eyes and then investing in things that are good for everybody. And then, yeah, my next question was, when are we actually going to get there? How far have we come? And when are we actually going to get to having an equal number of men and women in positions of power and influence? So I'm fundamentally an optimistic person. So I think I would say that if you looked at the last hundred years um, and you compared your life to your great grandmother's life, um, it's a lot better. And in terms of the numbers of female leaders, it's, it's high, etc. So the road overall is pretty positive. Having said that, I'm also very conscious how things can go backwards. And one of the analogies I was using that I um, that came from the book is this idea of an elastic band, where if you pull the elastic bands as we are and we're stretching society, we're having new ideas of how to do things. If you let go and you think you're there, what happens is the elastic band pings back and it, it defaults back. And in fact, it does so with violence. It doesn't just go back, it goes right back. So if you just assume that things are happening and it's all fine, then things can go backwards. And in many countries, we've seen that. We've seen that in uh, the, the United States, for example, and in many um, of the Eastern countries, uh, Eastern European countries. So the importance of continuing to challenge, continuing to demand change. Um, and then hopefully it will be in your lifetime, you know, that um, a lot of these issues will be uh, addressed. I, I really hope so. It will only happen with concerted effort and commitment and um, a, 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 an ability to envisage a different way of being. Mm -hmm. And not letting go of the elastic band. And how can we actually speed things up as well? Because we have come a really long way. But then when you think about 100 years, that's, that's also a really long time as well. And I'm, I'm sure that you must experience so much frustration. And I know that a lot of women my age, including me, still experience a lot of frustration experiencing you know, invisible sexism and unconscious bias. So how can we speed that up? Like, What can my generation do to help speed that up as well? Calling it out and calling it in, I would say, as a very simple kind of summary things, is when you see a problem... Um, do something about it and speak speak up to it. Um, the lovely thing about your generation, maybe every generation, is the passion with which they pick up a specific cause and run with it. Uh, and again, those can be very small ones, but have massive impact. Um, so period camp related campaigning, uh, you know, menstrual health related campaigning, um, or um, the fact that marriage certificates didn't have the mother, they only had the father until very recently. 
um, finding that there's something that bugs you that's that's indicative of the broader problem and just campaigning to make it change. There are no more page three. There are many, many examples of that where young people have picked an issue up and said, I'm going to make this change. Subjects on A-level subjects and so on. Uh, so not waiting for others to do things, but to do that, doing it with other people, because then you create a more sustainable, more interesting, more engaging uh, um, platform for change. By the way, my personal motto is fun and purpose, making change of the world, but actually doing that with fun and with um, enthusiasm, I think is the way forward. And uh, maybe a final little point is around the more you engage with the world, the more the world engages with you. So if you want speedier change, you need to get involved more as well. And I think that's really important that you can just sit back and let the world wash over you, but then you've got no agency, you've got no um, commitment. And mm -hmm. so commit, and that is the way things will change. So you've got to commit and don't wait, but have fun and purpose as well. I really like that, have fun and purpose because it keeps it energetic somehow. Right, Helen, I've got one more question for you. And that is, what is your biggest piece of advice to young women? Okay, let me give you two. Uh, one is that this pressure to conform in terms of what you look like, the issue that it's what women look like, not what they say and do, um, that society and we and you and everybody's complicit in, challenge that. So challenge your own obsession with what you look like your conversations with others about what they look like um, because it is so uh, destructive and limiting and um, narrowing of your own vision and then the counter to that is you know have that vision have um, the, the, again maybe this business about engage in the world have the dreams the, the the sense that you 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 that you're here for a purpose and you can have fun with it and you can make a difference and and do and be confident and be outgoing with that and be yourself with that don't let others determine who you are and what you can do okay i love that so challenge the pressure to conform what you look like and also have vision and engage with the world and be confident in what you do. Yeah, that sounds about right. If only it was that. Excellent. <laughs> that comes to the end of our interview. Helen, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. It was such a privilege to be able to talk to you. Real pleasure. And I look forward to hearing what you do next because you're one of those who do things. Thank Make you. things happen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Her Ambition with Josie Sequira Shuka. I would really appreciate if you could rate, review and subscribe so that more young women can find out about us. Find all our episode and social media details in the show notes below.